show up on a Sunday morning or maybe come to an event, but then you're like, so like, where's the Kool-Aid? Like, how do I take the next step? You know, like that, that type of question. And I get it because a lot of us want to know, how do I know I'm in? Right? Like, how do I know I'm in? And so it's a simple math equation. I know for math for some of you it's a little difficult, but we're going to get through this together. All right? It's a simple math equation. Connect, serve, give, and you're a member. That's how we say, hey, you're in, you're not just consuming, you're not just showing up, but you're contributing. You're a contributor. That's what a members here are all about. We are not going to just be consumers, we're going to be contributors. And that means that we serve, and that means that we give, and that means that we choose to connect, even when it doesn't necessarily always benefit us. And so... I want to give just a special plug along with John's plug, which I'd love to see that, and I'd love to see some people just reach out quickly because that ministry is starting August 28th on Wednesday nights. These connect groups are intentional. 10 to 12 people meeting two to four times a month, and it's just a year to 18 months that you're committing to. This is not a lifetime friendship, all right? This is just something that you choose to say this, I need community, Transformation, transformation 99% of the time does not happen just by gaining information. It takes accountability and discipline. And being connected is where you will receive that. Someone will look you in the face and they believe in you. They want to see you succeed. They will hold you accountable. They will encourage you. And they will take that information that you're learning together and they will hold you to the fire so that you grow. That's what connecting does. That's what it's supposed to do. So here's what we need. We just need people that maybe you're in a life group. You're in a group right now. You've been together for a long time. I've been a part of Kingsway. I know there's some groups in here that have been together for like 10 years. And I'm telling you, they're good groups. It's amazing. And when I ask you guys about your groups, I know this is what you tell me. You go, we've been through so much. That's what I hear. And I love that answer. And I go, Someone else needs that. Someone else needs that. Someone else in this room needs to connect in that way. And so we need people to stand up and start groups. We need people to just go, I I can host a group. This isn't a biblical literacy class. Okay? This isn't a character quiz. All right? This isn't like you're going, oh, I got some stuff and I don't know things. That's okay. These groups are intentionally set up for us to hold each other accountable, gain some information, and grow together. Walk together. And so if you're interested in doing that, I want you to come find me after service right up here. And I want to help you take some steps to possibly start a connect group. And if you're a person out there that's just looking to connect, we're going to have signups at the end of August, in the beginning of September, through the mid-September. There'll be a literally old-school table in the back with a list of places that you can just go and sign up. Be praying about it now. Be praying about it and thinking about it now. Don't wait to the conversation until it's that week, the list's back there, and then you do that awkward, like, walk by, maybe... Or if you're a married couple, you do the, like, we're going to do it? Are we doing it? I don't know. I don't know. And then people ask you about it, and you haven't had the conversation, and you're trying to have the eyeball, nonverbal conversation of whether or not you're going to do it. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe not, I don't know. Talk about it now. Talk about it now. Because here's what I'll tell you. 
This equation does not work one at a time. Work one at a time. This is the full thing. This is what it looks like to really jump in and be a part of it. So some of you, you are connected, but you're not serving. Some of you, you're serving, but you've never had accountability in your life. You've never had somebody hold you to the fire. Some of you, you have some accountability. You're even serving, but you have no investment. Your faith is purely based on your comfort level. And that's what this touches quickly. It's your comfort level. Go for the full equation. Go for it. Find a place to serve. Find a way to connect and start to give. Kingsway is not about money. We don't care. We care about your faith. And this is one of the easiest ways that your faith starts to move. It starts to have legs. It starts to get roots. It starts to grow and move. Complete the equation. That's what I'd tell you. Complete it. All right, have I harped enough on it? I think I have. We're going to continue another couple weeks, so you'll have another chance to hear it, but I'll help you start praying and thinking about it. We're in John chapter 2. We're in the Gospel of John. This is one of my favorite things that I've gotten to do in the last couple of years, which is just sit down with the text each week and just try to help. And I can tell you this week was extremely challenging and a lot of fun. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into it. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe that you came, that you lived a blameless, pure life, that you came with one mission, one goal, for the hearts of every man, woman, and child, to be rescued from darkness and brought into light, to be taken from the claws of death and brought back. To life, and not just any life, but full. Lord, may we be bearers of that same light in life. May we look at this witness, this incredible guide to belief. May we learn, may we be challenged, may we lean in. Work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. It's your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 2, verse 13 is where we're going to be today. I've got a little bit of a hollowness in my mic. I don't know if you can hear that. It's like a, I can hear myself, and that's going to be trouble because I'm like distracted. What's so cool about this section of Scripture, and I, here's what I do. Together. We're going to need to be there together today. You know, well, the words will be on the screen. If you don't have it, that's okay. But I highly, highly recommend just go in there today. And I'm looking at it right now. This is a story that gets a lot of uh, use in an offensive manner. Uh, it's a story that, uh, it's an event that, that, that has a lot of clout to it and a lot of meaning. But I want to make sure before we get there that we know why I'm taking my time in the setup. The, the, the reason I'm taking my time in the setup is because although this is just chapter 2, verse 13, the, the why this is here is so incredibly vital. See, to this point, John has told us an incredible poem uh, modeling after Genesis 
Uh, he's, he's gone through some incredible understandings of John the Baptist as our first, as first witness to the Lamb of God, this, this, this man that is also God that will take away the sins of the world. And then he's gone to chapter 2, which is the water to wine moment, the new covenant being extended, the old covenant being fulfilled with new wine that is an exacerbated, generous, overwhelming display of the glory of God. And it's an incredibly cool thing. And then the next thing that we see is the story that we're going to get in verse 13. And why that's so much of like a... is uh, We're jumping three years ahead in the future, between 12 and 13. So between verse 12 and verse 13, we're not like two days... We're like three years. And what's weird about that is that for most of us, if you're trying to put together an accurate display of who Jesus is and you're jumping around three years, you start to go, wait, that doesn't seem super accurate. But if we remember that John does not write this book with the idea of telling you a chronological version of what Jesus is about, but that you would learn and see the events in a way that would get you to believe. How many of y'all have discovered something in hindsight that you wish you knew in foresight? You know what I'm saying? How many of y'all wish you could go back three years and do something different? We just talk about it? I mean, there's some things. I mean, some investments maybe. Like, that's financial is the first one, right? You're like, oh, I'm selling that. <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe it's just a, a relational thing. Maybe it's something you did in a marriage. Maybe it's something you did with your kids. Maybe it's something you did in your business. Uh, maybe it's just flat out what you ate. But we do things a little different. There is something about John taking us from the water to wine straight into this event that I hope you catch the reason why. Because we're going to pick back up chronologically in chapter 3, but he slides this in here in a neat way. Before we go any further, today is not light. It's not. Uh, you may get confused today. Uh, you may get a little bit like, what in the world is he talking about? Because I'm going to make some assumptions about some things that you know just to be able to get through the things that I'm going to say. And if you don't get it, if you're a little lost at some point, and you're like, ah, that's okay. Please come and talk to me afterwards. Please send me an email. Please call me. I'd love to explain it further. Or do some investigation. The whole goal of this series for me was to get you to read the book of John and to see that it's a lot deeper and a lot bigger than John 3.16. We haven't even got to John 3.16 yet. Let's get to a verse. Should we do that? Here we go. On the screen so we can all be together. When it almost time for the Jewish Passover, three years, okay, from the last verse, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both the sheep, the cattle, and he scattered the coins of money uh, of the money exchangers and overturned the tables. And to those who sold the doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Pause. I mean, you've heard this maybe quoted to you, heard a sermon about it, read about it. How many of you have had it even quoted when someone was angry and you tried to point it out? Jesus got angry, right? That's how I heard it first time. Jesus got angry. He turned over tables. He drove people out with a cord of whips. Heard that before? I've heard that before. It's not untrue, but it's not the full context. The context of this Everybody in the entire nation of Israel has to come to Jerusalem for the temple Passover ceremony. And according to your economic status, your gift is either going to be a big one, a.k.a. cattle, or a small one, a.k.a. dove. Whatever you are capable of getting. So you come, and in order to go into the temple courts, you have to bring your gift. But because most of these people are traveling large distances, they can't afford to drag their gift with them. They can't just drag this thing across the country because they're walking for days or even weeks. So guess what? They buy their sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice for the year, for their household, for them as an individual that will put them in the proper place and relationship with God. The problem was how this was going down. The Roman world had expanded so much that most of them were not using the same currency. So number one, they were getting duped by the exchange rate of the currency. Number two, the gift had to be blameless or blemishless, which means the animal had to be inspected and found to be pure. Thus, the Lamb of God idea of John the Baptist must be pure. This is the concept here. But if you bought your animals outside the temple and went in and the priests examined your animal and it wasn't pure, you were punished even more financially. And you had to buy it at even ten times the rate that you just had outside the temple courts. And this is all going down. Jesus walks in, the Lamb of God, into Jerusalem during the Passover. You see the symbolism here. The pure and blameless one that will take away all the sins of the world and sees this going on. That people would be taken advantage of, shamed and guilted by their economic, economic status into not being able to get to and worship God. So of course he makes up in the court. He's like, you know what? In a couple of days, you ain't going to need this no more. It's going to be over. It's going to be fulfilled. Those jars are going to be full of wine. It's going to be new. He drives them out. He says, don't do that. But then we get this. John, the author, 
pops his head like the fourth parallel into the story. Hey, when this happened, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, they went to Bible school. They knew the scriptures. And when they're watching Jesus do this, it's like an epiphany. They've been with him for three years, and all of a sudden it's connecting. They're like, oh no. And who are they connecting it to? It's Psalm 69, verse 9. This is what it says. For the zeal of your house consumes me. The insults of those who insult you fall on me. This is David's psalm. This is going to be crazy. Jesus has just walked into Jerusalem on a donkey. He has had a kingly welcome into Jerusalem. They have put palm branches at his feet. They have called him Hosea. They have said, praise be to him. They are thinking this is their new king, and the disciples are taking it hook, line, and sinker. This is him. This is, proves it right here. This is it. John is pointing out the connection between Jesus and David. He's pointing it out right here in this verse, which is so cool that he takes the time to, to stop and tell you where their state of mind is. Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. This is just the state of mind in the temple. He's going, oh, revolution is coming. He's driving them out with whips. He's turning over tables. What's he doing next? Is he just going to walk into Rome and just start going, Harry Potter? Like, like what's going to happen? Is he taking over? I mean, crazy. But here's his response when the Jews questioned him about this. Then the Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? I am the Lamb of God. I have the total right to do this. Give me a sign. And then Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Ooh. Everybody went, now that we've seen, what's that? We have the hindsight, right? So when he says that, they're all like, dude, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. And then where's John at? Boop. There's his head again. You see him? He's like popping his head in the Bible. He's like, hey, uh, just so you know, we were here thinking about that too. But the temple... He had spoken of was his body, the Lamb of God. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, this is going to blow your mind. Pause. Read no further. He's poking his head into the story, and he's telling you what they learned later. 
But wouldn't you like to hear him learn it in the moment? Wouldn't you like to feel what it was like in the moment when all this came together? We can. It's in John 19. It's crazy. Watch this. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is hanging in front of John and Mary, and he has just had the exchange where he looks at John, the disciple he loves. He says, this is your mother. He says, take care of his mama. He takes care of his mama. You take care of her. And then John records this. As he's hanging on the cross, in his final moments, later knowing that everything had been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. And so they soaked it on a sponge. And they put the sponge on a stalk of hibiscus, or a hibiscus, I can't say it, it's a plant they used. I can't say that word. And they lifted it to his lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Now pause. When John made the connection between David and Jesus, what psalm did he go to? Psalm 69. Do you know what Psalm 69, 21 says? You watch his wheels turn. This is what it says in 16 through 21. This is David, but I want you to pay attention for 21. We're going to get there. This is David fleeing an enemy, feeling like his enemy is overwhelmed. Do you ever feel like your brokenness is too much? you ever feel like the world around you is out to get you? you ever feel like you need more than what you got? What someone can give you? Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and the great mercy. Turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before me. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. 21. I look for sympathy, but there is none. For my comforters, but I have found none. They put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. All of a sudden, the connection that was David to Jesus, he reads this a little further and he makes the connection that Jesus is so much more than a David. John is pointing out the conversation and this connection is Jesus is the Savior. And he's watching him hang on a cross and all of a sudden he's going, oh no, I understand. This is it. This is the moment. So then we get verse 22, and it says, After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed. And they believed. 
And what the scripture says and what he had said. And then in verse 23 of John, we get this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. Chronologically, we're back before the cross now. This is six days before the cross. Five days, actually, before the cross. He's performing and believed in his name. So they hear his authority, they hear what he's doing, and they're like, yeah, I'm in. Now, what are those signs? We've only seen one of them so far in John. How many more do we have? This is a good quiz. How many more do we have in John? How many are there total? So we've got one. This is good math. We've got six left. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For, they, for he knew all people. For he knew what was in each person. This is a fantastic transition. John sees the connection of David. He sees the connection of Jesus. He responds and says the people are responding. This is incredible. There are signs and wonders. But the fullness in this moment had not got to the place where they saw him on the cross and they saw him raised from the grave and they did not fully know or understand So the same word that says in verse 23 that they believed, this word right here, believed in verse 23, is this word right here. It's pusueo or pisteo, pisteo, okay? When it says they believed in him, literally verse 24, when it says he did not entrust them, that's the same word, pisteo. So it's like this. They believed in Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them. That's the translation. I believe. You can believe in me. That's great. I don't believe in you. Why is that? This same group of people is going to kill him. Think about that. I believe, I believe, I believe. Now, I see your heart. I see your heart. You do not. You will not. We all fall short. Hmm. I love the ending to this section. Doesn't it make you go... But wait, there's more. But, but how then? But what, but what do we do? Where do we go from here? How do we respond to that? You guys know what the next section is? It's John 3.16. Can you guys feel the setup? Can you feel the power of this section? New covenant wine. Joy, a generous gift. Heaven and earth in the imagery of the temple being brought to resolution and completeness in not just a figure of power, but a savior that is God. And then not by our own belief in the sense of what we think he is or what we think or hope he will be, but his display on the cross and the new life that is in that will be the turning point. Not some rule, 
Not some lost hope, but a specific act and a specific event will change the story. It's coming. I hope you read John this week. I hope you look at some of this and you're like, I don't know if what he's saying is right. I hope you look at it. Three things to take away from this real quick. Our relationship with God is priority. It is priority every single time. I will tell you this right now. Any time that you try to take something else and put it as the priority above God, it will break. It's not meant to be that. It's not meant to hold that position. It's just not meant to be that way. Marriage, friends, job, parenting, your children. It's not meant to be the top priority. And we can get in a lot of trouble putting David on the throne when God's supposed to be there. David's a great guy. He had a good heart. He, they thought, man, yeah, lineage, let's do it. But guess what? Until they made him savior, until he rose from the grave, they didn't get it right. This is against anything and anyone who keeps people from God. I have said this all the time. If your moral conviction keeps people from meeting the grace and loving, merciful God, knock it off. Knock it off. Accountability is different. Once they're in the fold, they've received the grace, they have walked with Jesus, that is different. But until then, get out of the way. Your preference, your comfort zone, your money-changing table, your way to get through to the, to the Holy of Holies is not and should not be in the way. And Jesus, that's why he shows up. This is the place where my people are supposed to come and find purity and find relationship, and they're finding money in the way. They're, fi- they're finding tables and animals and money in the way. Last one. Jesus removed every obstacle for every person to meet and know God, including my comfort zone and your comfort zone. Including your preferences and my preferences. Including all the things that you've said are off limits. In no way. Jesus had a way, and we're going to see this in the next couple of sections, but Jesus had a way of interacting with the person of rabbi, teacher status, and the lowliest woman in in Samaria, and he interacted with them on equal ground and was able to remove and help them see the truth and be peaceful and content and at rest and loving and gracious with both. And you know the only difference between those two people and who Jesus is and why we would struggle is our personal preferences, our prejudices, our comfort zones. What we see is okay and what they think is okay. That's what stands in the way a lot of times for people meeting God through us. We're uncomfortable. It has nothing to do with them. 
I guarantee you why John is putting all these little fourth wall breakage parallel things in there, because the whole time Jesus is doing this, all his disciples are standing in the corner going, what is happening? What are we doing? There was palm branches and singing out there, and now I'm in here and everything. Oh my God, I have to come back here, Jesus. This is what are you doing? Removing every obstacle, even when it's outside your comfort zone, to get people to know and love Jesus. That's what he's about, it's what he was for. My favorite thought about this is I'm just wondering how quickly John connected these dots. In this story, it's very easy to see that he sees the zeal for his father's house, and then all of a sudden he's seeing this this gall, this vinegar drink that is just nasty stuff that would have been used for all kinds of cleansing of the water and cleansing of materials. It basically was just this all-around thing they kept around to make sure the water was safe versus like their, their weapons somewhat sterilized, that it's like it entered into multiple levels of drinks that they would put in in small amounts that they used in a large amount that's disgusting. And he watches them put it on this pike and then lift it up, and then all of a sudden the rest of Psalm 69 starts playing out and he feels helpless and broken. Everything in his life is shattered. He's given this man three years. And then he starts to think, wait, maybe Jesus was up to something a little different. And I wonder if he even got to finish that thought before Jesus finished. It is finished. And I wonder if you and I feel that same conviction today. That we're not searching for information or connections in a way that we can cerebrally kind of put things together. Or we're so fascinated by what we hope in the future that we miss what's happening right now. That the grace and love and truth that God is enough that Jesus is enough on the cross for us. That that was the finished work of God. That that was grace raining down. That in that very moment, Luke records, the curtain splitting. And this temple that was for one group, that would be the horn of praise and glory and voice to the nations, all of a sudden becomes one nation under God, brought together, from Abraham to David, all the way to Jesus, is now in the kingdom under Christ. I don't think you put it all together. But I wonder if that's where we'd put our line in there. John's work and the psalmist's work and we knew the power of 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit and the unleashing of the church. That we would say, wow, it was finished. It was enough. And I'm here because of it. He removed every obstacle. He got everything out of the way. And he made me his top priority. And he did it. He did it. And you know I get to walk in it. Believe. That's what John is crying for you to do in this book. Believe the truth that it could be real. 
You are loved. You are given grace today more than you ever thought possible. It's right here, right now, because of the finished work of Jesus. Let me pray for you.